Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. All right, so this week our portion is Miketz from the end, and we're continuing in the story of Joseph's life. And I feel like the theme for this morning is there's an end to every sorrow. Last week we talked about the perseverance of Joseph, the trials and challenges that he went through throughout his life, and how he endured hardship but never lost faith in God. And last week's portion ended on a little bit of a cliffhanger. And this week's portion actually does too. Uh, What happens in both cases is it looks like there's a ray of hope after a time of trial and difficulty. But just at the last moment, that ray of hope appears to be wiped out. In the case of the last week's portion, here Joseph had been in prison for 10 years. Now, if you go back and you were to reread the portion, you'd see that he was placed in prison after being falsely accused. He gained favor with the guards. And then it goes straight to a story of the cupbearer and the uh, bread maker, (laughs) baker, there you go, the baker had been put in prison. Okay, and so you read that and you quickly say, oh, look, he went into prison, he got promoted, he did well, and boom, right away, here come the cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh. But that was 10 years that went by. 10 years go by, and now, he's, now he has an audience with the cupbearer and the baker, and the Lord gives him interpretation of their dreams, and then they happen just as the Lord had shown him. And he tells the cupbearer, cup be sure to mention my name to Pharaoh. And so it sounds really good. I mean, you know, if you were Joseph in that moment, you're like, this is my ticket. I am on my way out. Ten long years are done. And the cupbearer forgets and says nothing. Okay, so then fast forward to this week's portion. And I'm going to give some spoilers, okay? If you haven't read the portion, you're going to get some spoilers up front. But... Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies, and he throws Simeon in prison and demands that the brothers go get Benjamin and bring him back. And there's some other things that happen along the way that cause his brothers to fear. Well, now they come back in an attempt to prove their innocence, and they come before Joseph And Simeon's released to them. Benjamin is released to them. They have an incredible meal with Joseph. They're heading back home, and their hearts are full of gladness. But then Benjamin gets framed as though he had stolen something from Joseph. And now they're headed right back to see Joseph, expecting that they're all going to be slaves forever. So we end both weeks on a cliffhanger, but the cliffhangers are not the end because there's an end to every sorrow. And this week when we open up in the portion, what we find is that Joseph is about to be 
called up out of the pit. And next week we'll see Joseph or we'll see Judah interceding on Benjamin's behalf. And in both of these stories, what's happening is that there's someone who comes and speaks on behalf of another so that they can be released and set free. And so in the case of Joseph being in prison, it's the cupbearer who comes and speaks before Pharaoh about Joseph. And in the case of next week, Judah is speaking on behalf of Benjamin in order to have him released. And in both cases, there's redemption and elevation. Now, as I mentioned, Joseph had been at the end of 10 years and he'd been serving there in the prison. So at this point, he's 28 years old. He's had a rough 11-year path from being uh, sold by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused, put in prison. But again, he never lost faith in God. Now, there's two aspects that are commonly spoken of when it comes to faith or trust in God. The Hebrew terms for these are emuna, which is often translated as faith, and the other is bitachon, which is often translated as trust. And in some ways, these, these are, are related terms, but they express different dimensions of aspects of faith or trust. So emuna is often thought of as um, accepting, believing that God is real, that he is sovereign, that he is in control, and he is acting in our lives and in the lives of all around, and that nothing is outside of his reach, right? So that is belief in this all-powerful, transcendent God, and that he is intimately involved in our daily activities. Now then, so that's one aspect of faith. We can believe all those things, but then there's another aspect called betachon, trust. And this trust comes from a place of not only believing that God is and he's sovereign, but also believing that he is good. So he is involved in every aspect of your life, but he's involved in every aspect of your life to bring about good. Because you can believe that God is all-powerful, but not, but not trust him. Because you can say, you know what, I, I believe, God, that everything is in your, in your hands and you're intimately involved with all of this, but I don't think you're looking out for me. I think you're out to get me. I mean, look at this. She gave me dreams about what was going to happen. Apparently, I messed up, did some things wrong. I got sold into slavery, got falsely accused, put into prison. I've now reached the lowest of the low. I thought slavery was bad, but now prison, even worse. But that's not what Joseph did. Instead, Joseph believed that not only was God's hand on everything, but that God was good. And because God was good, he could trust him. So even in the midst of these trials and difficulties that he faced all along the way, he said, no, I can trust in God even when the answer, even when the redemption is hidden from my eyes. Right? Because he can't see it. He thought he could see it. He's like, the cupbearer is getting me out right now. But at the end of two years, after that event is where we pick up in this week's portion in Genesis 41. And I'm going to start in verse 9. 
So what, what happened in the first eight verses is that Pharaoh had two dreams, two dreams that he did not understand and could not get interpretation on from any of his magicians, wise men, necromancers, all those people. They could not tell him what his dreams meant. But he was greatly perplexed. And it's at that time the cupbearer speaks up. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as, he interrupt, and as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Okay, so, so here's Joseph. He's brought before Pharaoh. He's got the opportunity to make a name for himself, right? Because someone's spoken for him. He's now seeing this come to fruition. But look at his attitude. His attitude was, no, 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 it's not about me. It's God. God's going to be the one who will speak through me. So even in this moment, he's saying, Pharaoh, it's about God. God is your answer, not me. Now, God may give you the answer through me, but I'm just a vessel making myself available to him for his purposes to go forth. So it's in God's perfect timing that Joseph is brought up out of the pit. Because have you ever thought about what it might look like if the cupbearer had come out to Pharaoh two years ago and said, hey, guess what? What just happened? A guy in prison told me. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh likely would have said, okay, so how is that important to me? I've got magicians. I've got necromancers. I've got, wisdom, you know, I've got other people to re rely on. And then Joseph would have been forgotten. So in the moment, it looked as though Joseph was forgotten. But God said, you're not forgotten. It's just that I have a plan and a purpose. I have wisdom that you don't know. So I'm going to keep you hidden until the time is right. And then I'm going to reveal that which is ready to be revealed. And when I do, it's going to take your circumstances and flip them on end. And you're going to see that I am good and do good. You're going to see that your bitachon, your trust in me, was not misplaced. And so, so he gives the interpretation to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh hears the interpretation. And his response in verse 38 of chapter 41 is what I want to take a look at. 
Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt, and Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. So I wanted to pause at this, at this location because there's a few things that very much parallel the identity of Yeshua. You know, last week we talked a bit about the parallels of Joseph's life and Yeshua's life. And there are strong connections between the two. From the one who is, is the suffering servant, who went all the way down to the pit to be raised up and set on high so that he could bring salvation not only to his brothers, to the, to the, but to the whole world, right? So we went into that in a little more depth last week. But now when we see the nature or how he's put on high, we very much see parallels between Joseph and Yeshua. Now, one thing that we read just a moment ago is it says that they called out before him as they took him through the streets. They said, bow the knee. Well, in, in the Hebrew, they said it's written avrech. Okay? Avrech. And Avrech literally is father of the king. Okay? So here they were calling, this is the father of the king. Fascinatingly. And so, and saying, bow the knee. And then the name that he was given, Zaphanath Panea, means he who explains what is hidden. Okay? He, he who gives revelation to that which is hidden. And of course, we know with Yeshua in John 1.18, the scripture says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has revealed him. He's given revelation of the Father whom no one has seen. And then the way that Pharaoh describes him, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? In John 3, 34 through 35, the scripture says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So the scripture speaks of how God gave the Spirit, God gave his Spirit without measure to Yeshua. Right? So can we find another like him, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Pharaoh goes on to say, you shall be in charge of my palace, and by your command shall all my people be sustained. Only in the throne shall I outrank you. 
And so this is the same aspect where God raised Yeshua up and, and set him as King of kings and Lord of lords over all the earth. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 27 through 28, Paul writes, For God has put all things in, in, in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So that was a complicated way of saying, I know, how did Paul make it so complicated? All he needed to do was just take the path of what Pharaoh said. And he said, only in the throne will I be greater than you. Right? So God gives Yeshua the name above every name and gives him all authority, but yet he says, you are my son and you are still subject to me so that God is all in all. And so Yeshua reigns until all things are put in subjection under his feet, and then he turns back authority over to God. But again, Yeshua operating in, in all the rights and authority given to him by his Father, that everyone will listen to his voice and obey him because he speaks with the authority of his father. And then uh, Pharaoh gave Joseph his ring, a symbol of his authority. He dressed him in royal garments and gave him a royal place to ride upon his chariot. Now, this time, at this time in Joseph's life, he, had, he was 30 years old. It had been 13 years since he had been sold as a slave. He's 30 years old, and that's when he's passing through the entire land, and it's being proclaimed what his great status is. Well, in Luke 3, 21 through 23, John the Immerser is out immersing people by the Jordan, or in the Jordan, and now when all the people were baptized, and when Yeshua also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Yeshua, when he began his ministry, was about thirty years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Haley. So here it is, a public proclamation from the Father of who Yeshua is. You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased at the age of 30. So we see very much parallels here of what's being proclaimed over Joseph, later also to be proclaimed over Yeshua. Once again, another connection with this suffering Messiah, son of Joseph. Now, Joseph begins to rule at the age of 30, and he rules through the seven years of, uh, of great abundance, and he stores up vast amounts of grain during this time of plenty. And during this time, he has two children. In Genesis 41, verse 50, the Scripture says, Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Now, something I didn't mention before, one of the ways in which uh, Joseph's name was upheld was that he had been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, which is why he was put into prison. And then one of the testimonies to his exoneration 
was that he was then given the daughter of Potiphar as his wife. Okay? And, the, and that was a testimony to his innocence from the prior accusation. So things were being set right um, in, in every dimension. Now, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Okay, so the first one. Now, in both cases, the names that he gives has a connection to the difficulties that he's walked through. If you think about where he is in his life right now, he's at the age of 37. For seven years, he's reigned. Things are good, right? And there's been degrees of restoration that have been given to him. But the complete restoration has not yet happened for him because he's still in exile from his brothers and from his father. And even in that, there is a a hardship that he's enduring. But in the midst of the hardship, he's recognizing the goodness that God has shown him along the way. And he's saying that the goodness of God has caused me to forget all my hardship and, my fa- and all my father's house. Not that he had forgotten them, but the pain and the suffering that he had endured, God was, God was healing along the way. And then the second child he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So the name Ephraim has certainly has a connection to being fruitful. In fact, the um, it's spelled Aleph, Pei, Resh, Yod, Mem. Okay, now that you can remember all that, it'd be nice to have a graphic up here. But you start out with these first three letters. Let's just start with that: Aleph, Pei, Resh. Okay. Well, Pei, Resh is part of peri. It's like from fruit, okay? And when he says he's made me fruitful, that's the word para. Okay, got it. I'm going to name him Ephraim because God has made me para in my in the land of my affliction. So there's a connection to fruitfulness. But there's another connection that is embedded in the name with Aleph, Pe, Resh, and that's Afar. Afar is a translation of it is ashes or dust from the ground. So on one hand, God has made him fruitful, but embedded in the name that he is using to name his child is this concept of ashes or dust. And then with the Yod Mem at the end, that makes it plural. So it's like ashes or multiple dusts. And so the sages saw that and said, well, what is this that is being alluded to in the name? Of course, we know fruitfulness, but why multiple dusts? And their explanation of it is that he's referring back to his beginnings, where he came from, from Abraham and Isaac. Okay, because, and there's, there's scriptures that the sages point to where um, Abraham refers to himself as just dust when he's speaking to God to intercede for Sodom and saying, 
You know, Lord, please hear if you will, for I am but dust. Okay? And then there's um, with Isaac, with the Akeda, when he was being bound, there's a connection to dust in there as well. And so within these two aspects, you have Abraham displaying humility and you have Isaac displaying a complete devotion to God in his service. And so we see Joseph saying, you've made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. You've made me fruitful from the, from the roots of where I came from, from a place of being, having grandparents who were humble and who walked in constant devotion to you. And that's how Joseph had walked. That's how he had walked. Even when he had been attempted to be seduced, he had been offered riches that would go to his head. But he continually identified himself as a Hebrew, not as an, not as an Egyptian. He never forgot where he came from. And he walked faithfully into God. So he walked, with the, he walked in the footsteps of his fathers. Now another connection that I see with this from the ashes is that in both the name, you, you see ashes and you have fruitfulness. And we sang about it earlier, how God can take, he can create beauty from ashes. He can make a garden out of a grave, right? And the same God who is God on the mountain is the God of the valley. And so I see embedded in even the name of Ephraim that he's saying, God, you've turned my ashes into beauty. You've taken the loss that I had and you've created fruitfulness, a double portion of fruitfulness, Ephraim. Okay, multiple fruits. And so yet again, there's this statement of his faith in God. Even though he didn't have the full resolution yet, he still believed in God's goodness. Now as we continue on with the story, we see Joseph's brothers are going to come to see him. So the famine wasn't just in Egypt, it was in all the land. And as it spread out into the land of Canaan, Joseph's brothers and his father were subject to the lack as well. So Joseph or Jacob saw that there was provision in Egypt and he sent 10 of his sons down to get provisions for them. He did not send Benjamin. Okay, so... Let's go to Genesis 42, 6. Joseph was governor over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. And they went on to explain more about their family. Even still, Joseph said, no, you're spies. 
and by this you'll be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words will be ver verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now here comes a reckoning for his blood. So the brothers realized that God was in control and that their ill treatment of their brother was now coming back upon them. And what they highlight as the biggest problem was that they didn't listen to his, his cries for mercy. They didn't, cry, they didn't listen to his cries for mercy. And when they're, they're saying these things in his presence, not knowing that he could understand the Hebrew that they were speaking, because there was an interpreter between them, And so they didn't recognize their brother. And, and the question always comes up of, well, how is it that they couldn't recognize their own brother when he recognized them? And, and in some ways, it, it can be hard to imagine, right? I mean, this is your brother who you knew for 17 years. But then on the other hand, he would be very difficult to recognize not only could God hide the reality from the brothers of who Joseph was, but it would also be extremely difficult coming here into Egypt. You've sold your brother into slavery and you don't even know if he's still alive. You come to Egypt. According to tradition, they actually went and looked for him when they came to Egypt. And one of the reasons why they were accused of being spies is that they had split up and they had gone throughout the city and they had entered by 10 different gates to go and see if they could find any word of what had happened to Joseph. Interesting. But now they had come in, they're being accused of spies, they can't recognize him, and I, I see it as being pretty logical from, from the degree that here he is, he is no longer dressed as a Hebrew, he's dressed in Egyptian garments. They would not be befitting a slave. He's clean-shaven, as the Egyptians were. He's in a position of power over a foreign people, and that doesn't make any sense either. So even if they were to look and say, you know, he kind of looks like our brother, it would probably be too much for their minds to actually be able to overcome all the other circumstances and say, you know, I really think that's him. You know, if one of them had said, hey, do you think that's Joseph? You know, the other nine would have been like, <laughs> you're crazy. <laughs> What's gotten into you? Right. But they don't recognize him. And 
Again, this I see is another picture of, of Joseph and Yeshua, right? Because so many times you'll hear the question of, how come the Jews can't see that Jesus is the Messiah? I mean, look, just read the, read the New Testament. Look at all the miracles that he performed. Look at all the prophecies that he fulfilled, right? And it seems so plain and obvious to a Christian that you'd be like, what's their problem? But then you step back and you say, well, wait a second. What does Yeshua look like to the Jew according to the way that he's been presented? Well, to the Jew, it looks like he's the God of a different religion, right? He's in a place of power, but he's dressed differently. Many of the ways that he, he's been taught about are contrary to the way that a Jew would have walked in faithfulness to the Torah, calling the people to repentance and faithfulness to the Torah, often being spoken of as though he did away with it and established something new. And so, yeah, he'd be kind of the equivalent of Joseph in this degree. It's like, yeah, hard to recognize, hard to see through it when we have not represented Yeshua correctly based on who he was, what he taught, how he lived, and what he called those who followed after him to do and to live like. So it's, it's another very much a, a parallel. Now, within it, we could, we could find fault and we could point the finger and we could blame and say, look at, look at how Christianity has done so wrong in, in their presentation of the historical Yeshua. But even in the midst of challenges with how he's been portrayed, it doesn't change the reality of who he is as a Savior and the Son of God. It's just a matter of understanding and, and wisdom and expression. And even in the midst of it, can we believe that even over these 2,000 years of divergence between Judaism and Christianity, that God has a purpose in the midst of it and saying, at the right time, I am bringing greater and greater revelation of who Yeshua is so that people will see, so that I, blind eyes will be opened and there will be this incredible reveal of who Yeshua truly is, the Messiah of Israel and the Messiah to save the entire world as well. Again, there's there's greater purpose, right? Paul speaks of it as a partial, partial blinding that was given to the children of Israel along the way, but that there will be a time when that blinding is lifted. There will be a time when the veil is lifted. And there's, there, I, I think there's a couple of veils here. There's the veil from which the Jewish people are unable to see Yeshua as the Messiah, and there's a veil from which the Christians have not been able to see Yeshua as a Jewish Messiah and the full message of his gospel. I think both veils are being lifted. Both veils are being lifted for a great reveal. And we know that when that reveal occurs, there will be acceptance of, of Yeshua as Messiah, even though his current rejection is serving a purpose of being reconciliation 
for the Gentiles with God, right? For the nations with God. And Paul speaks in Romans eleven fifteen, saying, well, if, if rejection, if the Jewish people's rejection of Yeshua brings reconciliation, then their acceptance will bring life from the dead, right? God's holding out for a greater purpose, a greater revelation, but his intention is fully to reveal that which is hidden. And along the way, he's giving hidden miracles, hidden blessings to both his children in Israel and to his children in the nations. You know, the connection here of hidden things being given as blessings, I feel like that ties into what takes place when the brothers first leave, okay? They're, they're leaving. They've come. They've been accused of being spies. They've been put in prison. On the third day, they were brought out of prison. One remains, Simeon, in their place, while the other nine return home with provisions for their family. And in Genesis 43, verse 19, they're actually on their way back, so I didn't go far enough. So they, they go home, and when they go home, they find that all their money has been replaced in their sacks. So they brought money for the food, they paid it, but then they received the food and with all their money back in their sacks, which in the moment is greatly disturbing because they've been accused of being spies and now every ground is laid before them for being thieves as well. And yet even still their brother is in prison. Goodness. That's a trial. Okay, so after, after a good period goes by, they're sent back. They're sent back to the land and Jacob says, look, take, extra, take double the money and the money they returned. Okay, so you're taking three portions of money back and take a tribute of the best of the land to, to Joseph, not to Joseph, but to the viceroy. Okay, so they come back and they're told they're going to go to Joseph's house, which is another stressful item because, they, again, they see themselves as being set up. And so they come up to the steward of Joseph's house and they speak with him at the door of the house. And they said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks. And there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. And he replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So in that moment, they're beginning to see God's hand moving on their behalf. They're seeing that a hidden treasure had been given to them and they were not being accused. And now they've got their brother restored to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they'd washed his feet, when they had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that he should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had, that, 
um, they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and then by themselves, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, and they sat before him the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. So when the scripture says that they looked at one another with ama amazement, according to tradition, what happened is that Joseph took his silver goblet and he would ring it. I don't know, kind of like with a fork. I don't know with what. But anyway, he would, and then what he would do after he had done that, he would then say, you will sit here. And he did that for each one. And so he seated them from the oldest to the youngest, which the brothers would have been amazed by. Right? Because how could, how could Joseph have known their birth order? Especially when they're almost all, except Benjamin, born within a six to seven year period. A six to seven year difference, and now they're all in their 30s. It'd be a little bit hard to tell who's the oldest and who's the youngest. So him doing that, they recognized him as using the goblet as divination. So portions were given to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. So he gave to each one of them a portion like his own, except for Benjamin, which he gave a fifth portion to, or not a fifth portion, five portions to. I always wonder what, his, <laughs> what the table looked like in front of him. I don't know, but... Almost like Thanksgiving. Um, okay. So the brothers leave Egypt. or they, they begin leaving Egypt to head out. They've had an incredible dinner. They have their brother, both brothers restored to him truthfully because they thought that they were going to lose Benjamin as well. They've got Benjamin. They've got Simeon. They're headed home. Things really could not have gone better for them. But then Joseph brings about his, his plan to frame Benjamin. Okay, Genesis 44, verse 6. Joseph's servant has been dispatched to, to run after the brothers. Actually, i tell you what. We're going to start in verse 4. They had left the city and had not gone far when Joseph said to, to the one in charge of his house, Get up, chase after the men. When you overtake them, you are to say to them, Why do you repay evil for good? Is this not the one from which my master drinks and with which he regularly divines? 
you have done evil in how you acted. So he's speaking of the silver goblet because the silver goblet had been secretly placed in Benjamin's uh, sack of grain. So all the money had been put back in all their sacks and the silver goblet had been put in Benjamin's sack. And he overtook them and spoke these words to them. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? It would be sacrilegious for your servants to do such a thing. Here, look, the money that we found in the mouth of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. They're saying, look how innocent we are. We brought back the money you gave us. How then could we have stolen from your master's house any silver or gold? Anyone among your servants with whom it is found shall die, and we also will become slaves to my Lord. And he replied, what you say now is also correct. The one with whom it is found shall be my slave, but the rest of you shall be exonerated. Hurriedly, each one lowered his sack to the ground, and each one opened his sack. He searched. He began with the oldest and ended with the youngest, and the goblet was found in Benjamin's sack. They rent their garments, and each one reloaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah arrived with his brothers to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this deed that you have done? Do you not realize that a man like me practices divination? So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord, and how can we speak, and how can we justify ourselves? God has uncovered the sin of your servants. Here we are. We are ready to be slaves to my Lord, both we and the one in whose hand the goblet was found. But he replied, It would be sacrilegious for me to do this. The man in whose possession the goblet was found, only he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Just as Joseph had been enduring challenges and difficulties along the way, now his brothers were experiencing some of the same upheaval. And in the moment, you know, oftentimes it's spoken of this as being Joseph's test of his brothers to see if they truly were repentant or if they still bore the same hatred that they had had for him in the beginning. And the way that they would prove that they still had the same kind of hatred or animosity towards Joseph would be if they treated his brother in the same way. Like, what would they do when faced with a brother who threatens their family's existence? And I, and I speak of that because of something I didn't talk about last week. Um, one of the things with that the sages explain with why the brothers acted the way that they did towards Joseph is they explain that the brothers knew that there was a calling and a destiny for the family, that they were to carry forward their, their father's legacy, to carry forward this covenant relationship with God to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And they felt like Joseph and all of his bragging of his grandeur and his great dreams was actually a threat to their mission as opposed to something that would help their mission along the way. So they saw him as one who was bringing, bringing division 
within the family as opposed to unity and being aligned with the mission. And so based on that, they acted and sold him into slavery. So this is, this is one example, okay, of possible reasons for why they would have done it. And so now, Joseph gets to see, where's your heart? I know you recognize that you weren't merciful to me, but now, given a situation where your future is threatened by this brother of yours who is from Rachel, who is Joseph's brother, what will you do? Will you do the same thing and sell him out as a slave? Or will you stand up for him? Okay, because the response is going to then let Joseph know, does he really have brothers? Or has he, re has he really had to forget his whole family? And his brother's response in the midst of the trial is the farthest thing from abandoning their brother. They all pack up their donkeys and they head right back into Egypt with them. Instead of saying, yep, Benjamin serves you right. You go on right back there. We're heading home to father. But no, they come back and they say, my Lord, we are all ready to be your slaves. We're not selling our brother into slavery. And so Joseph's beginning to see the true the true heart of his brothers, the true repentance that has gone beyond just remorse and into that which is going to bring forth action in keeping with that repentance. And one of the things that, that plays into that is they, they had to be operating still from a place of faith in God and trust that even in the midst of the trial, that he was for them. Otherwise, they would seek only to take care of themselves. It had to be the combination of Amuna and Bitachon, faith and trust working together, operating in the, in the uh, brothers of Joseph, believing that even in the midst of that, that God could still work on their behalf. So they had faith to move forward in it. And next week, we'll get to hear more about how this turns out with what Judah's intercession looks like. But again, we're, we're at that point in a story where all hope seems to have been lost. But God's about to bring a reversal. God's about to bring a reversal that will not only restore what was lost, but will elevate his brothers to a new status. Because in that... Just as we sang earlier, if God, is the, if, if God is the God in the mountain and in the valley, then he can be trusted in the good and in the bad. One of the things that, in explaining the concept of bitachon and the trust, it is presented in, the, in a case of where you look at a circumstance and you see that there is no rational way of things being made right or working out, but yet you still believe in God that he's going to take it and use it for good. But then the sages go a step further and they say there is even a greater level of understanding of bitahon 
which is when you can come to the point of even saying that that which looks bad is good. Man, that's a hard place to be. I, I, still, I still can't quite get to the point of swallowing that one and say that's really greater enlightenment, right? Because you think about Joseph in prison and the difficulty that he's walking through and saying, no, this is good. Or he's in the pit and being sold into slavery and saying, nope, this is good. Not just, no, God's going to use this for good, but even being able to say, no, even this in this moment is good. That's a whole different level of trust in God. Now, it's one where, you know, I say it's, it's hard to swallow. I'd like to be at that point, you know. How many of you <laughs> would like to be able to be like, man, in the midst of all the trial and just say, nope, this is good. This is good. But that's really what faith in a good God is, is to be able to say, even in the valley, God is with me and for me. And even this, there is good in it. So even if you go back to Joseph naming his, his son Ephraim, he's like, look, there are ashes even in, this, in, even in the midst of this. There, I don't have full restoration. I'm still separated from my father and my brothers. But God has made me fruitful. So in this, there is good. And I think one aspect is finding the good. Because sometimes the good is hidden from our eyes. And we have to seek it out. And we have to search it out. There's um, a passage in Job that I was drawn to this morning. Job 28. Job is, is speaking about riches that exist in the earth. Right? He says, Surely there's a mine for silver, a place where they refine gold, Iron is taken from the dust and rock. Copper is smelted. He puts an end to darkness and to the farthest limit he searches out the rock in gloom and deep shadow. And he speaks about how the, the miner is going into the depths, into the darkness, seeking out something of great value. He's saying that these are riches that the birds of the sky haven't seen, that the, there's riches that many men have not seen. It's up to this miner to dig and to find the hidden treasure and to bring it out. And it actually says in verse 11, he dams up the streams from flowing and what is hidden he brings out to the light. Right? The riches are there for the one who will seek it out the one who will go into the places, even in the dark places, and find that which is good and bring it to light. And then, so he's speaking about worldly riches, but then he shifts gears. And in verse 12, he says, but where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not with, it, with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. And he goes on to speak about the surpassing value of wisdom and understanding over anything that is a worldly rich. 
And in verse 23, he says, God understands its way and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and also searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. If the riches of the earth which are hidden, are worth seeking out and bringing to light, how much more is the wisdom and understanding of God for us to seek and to search out? Because within his wisdom and his understanding, he gives us revelation of how he's moving and operating in the world and in our lives. And when we operate, when we then learn that wisdom, seek it out, and walk, we walk in the fear of the Lord, and we depart from evil. That is our wisdom and our understanding. When Joseph was talking about who Pharaoh should put over the gathering of all the grain, he says, let him seek out a man of wisdom and understanding. Seek out a man who fears God and who will walk uprightly far from evil. So Joseph embodied the wisdom and understanding that made him fit to be the one who would rule and reign and provide bread to all the earth. Now when Yeshua was given the full measure of the Spirit, he was given a spirit of wisdom and understanding. Right? And I think it's, I think it's Isaiah 11. Um, let me see real quick. Um, yes, it says, Spirit of wisdom, uh, Isaiah 11, 2, And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Right? He has all these things. He's the one who embodies the wisdom and understanding of God such that he is the one who is fit to rule and to reign and to be the one who gives bread to all the earth. Oh, that he would be revealed. That he would be revealed in our hearts. That we would seek out his wisdom. And that we would walk in understanding. And that as we do we will encourage others also to seek out his wisdom and understanding such that veils may be lifted so that the hidden things may, may be seen and that the sorrow that the whole earth walks in while we're awaiting his return would come to an end and we would see the rule and reign of Yeshua established on the earth. It is coming. And just as Joseph's brothers had a part to play in it, a decision to make that would align themselves with getting into the path of, the rede of redemption, so too we may, may we align ourselves with the path of true redemption. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you for your goodness and the kindness that you've shown us. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you. And thank you for the measure of faith that you give us. 
Lord, I ask that uh, we will continue to place ourselves fully in your hands. Lord, trusting you, going beyond just believing that you are, but believing that you are good and working on our behalf. Lord, we thank you that even though we may go through sorrows, Lord, there's an end to every sorrow and there is restoration. There is redemption. Father, we ask for you to give us eyes to see and give us wisdom and understanding. May we seek your face each and every day in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.